Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, 10 through 15 is our text today. Galatians chapter 5. We're picking up on the verse where we didn't have time to get to last week in verse 10. Today's title is Called to Freedom. It's really part three, really, of this idea of freedom. And last week we looked at what a living faith is and what a living faith is not. The Word of God is very clear at marking out a strong difference between the two where we like to live, sometimes we try to live somewhere in the middle. We like to try to straddle the fence, so to speak, in this life, but the Word of God takes His truth and pushes us one way or another. This is a faith. True and living faith results in or is manifested in an obedience connected to love. It's not void of love. It's an obedience that lives out a life of love. We also saw that false teaching, which we're going to see more of today, not only affects our beliefs, But wrong beliefs results in, as we're going to see more and more, wrong living as well. Our justification moves to and is most necessarily shown in our sanctification. Christ regularly throughout his teaching and his ministry pointed to, uh, John especially points this out, the, the the necessity of works showing that we do have faith. James also brings this out. We're going to see more of this today. Your sanctification matters. And the rest of this chapter contrasts and compares between two ways of living. The way of living between a life of the flesh or a life of the spirit. And again, no middle road here. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. The church is to be a people who walk in the spirit. So today's text is found again, as I mentioned, Galatians five ten through 15. Today we're going to see it in two parts. The first part. In verses 10 through 12, is Paul setting himself up against the false teacher or teachers? He is contrasting the teaching of circumcision with the teaching of the cross, and he's using that to set himself up against their false teaching to show his right, his right as a teacher. He then uses some things that we don't find really to be very uh, politically correct today, but we're going to see that. He uses irony. He uses biting sarcasm to show his disdain for their anti-Christian religion. We ought to take great issue with false teaching. It sends people to hell. False teachers are not to be tolerated. They are to be dealt with harshly. We should not play nice. Then in the second part of today's sermon, in this text we'll see in verses 13 through 15, that Paul picks back up on the theme of freedom in Christ. He goes on to talk about how to use that freedom biblically, to use it properly, to use it in the spirit. And he's going to show that through the rest of this chapter, through a life of obedience to love, not only to God, but to others. And he goes on to explain how to use that freedom to love your neighbor very well. This is a command, and that command is our freedom. So let's read our text together. And before we read it, here's the big idea. As we're reading, here's the big idea. We're given here an answer to this question. What does it really mean And what does it look like to truly live in freedom? What does it look like to truly live in freedom? 
So let's read Galatians 5, 10 through 15. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take this truth that we've just read. I pray that you will guard our journey through its meaning today, that the Holy Spirit of God would show forth the eternal value in these five verses, that we would see the, the deeper life in Christ, the freedom of Christ, and what it really is, and how we are called to live. May we guard against that which Paul has been battling, the legalism, Would we also guard against lawlessness and find that true teaching that Christ sets forth for us? So help me not to say more than what is intended nor less, but I pray that the weight of your word would free us more into Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first phrase here, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Paul deals with this very shaky situation with his attention to the believer. These believers being possibly persuaded to bind themselves to damning teaching by settling the believers back into Christ. He's redirecting them back to where they're supposed to go. Paul points his attention and confidence towards the one who has bought them and purchased them and placed them in himself. He does not put, notice, his confidence in the Galatian believer here. When he's saying, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, his confidence is in Christ. He wants these believers to place their confidence into Christ. He does not put his confidence in them. He also, notice, does not put his conf- does not ask the Galatian believers to put their confidence in himself, into Paul. He doesn't want them to put their confidence in his argument or in his rhetoric. Rather, Paul puts his confidence in the Lord that they will take no other view than his. He's that sure of his teaching. Paul is that sure of the purity of the gospel. This is not arrogant, as some have said. What we learn here is that what believers believe matters greatly. What you believe matters greatly. Your view of the gospel, the right view of the gospel, matters this much. So Paul is confident that if they belong to God, then they will take this view, and only this view. Believers have been called narrow-minded. Have you ever been called narrow-minded? Have your co-workers ever called you narrow-minded, or maybe they use the word bigoted? Well, believers are narrow-minded. Believers do have a narrow way, 
We walk a narrow road. We have a narrow gospel. But if you find that gospel, it's very wide and deep. Right? We believe a narrow message. But the wideness of God's grace kernel within that narrow message within Jesus Christ, who is the only and eternal Savior. It is wide and deep, as is His love. So let's take some time for application here for us. What, what is your view of the gospel of Jesus Christ? For many weeks, we've been going over faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. Is that your view? Do you believe in that narrow road that Christ has called you to walk? When presented with the truth of justification by faith alone and not of your work, do you believe that truth? Does it resonate within your heart? Does it cause you to sing and to rejoice? To know where you're going? To know who you belong to? Are you bothered by the teaching that you were totally depraved? Dead in your trespasses and sins before Christ? Totally helpless and have nothing to do with your salvation except for the sin that He freed you from? Does that bother you or does that cause you to rejoice? Those who belong to God will take no other view. I am confident of that. That's what he's saying here. It's an exclusive truth. Every other religion out there, every one of them teaches that you have to do something to earn your way to the God. Ours is the only religion where the God came down, sacrificed himself for you, and you do nothing. We believe this view stands against all other views that God came down to man, freed us through his son's death, burial, and resurrection. And I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Let's look at the second half of verse 10 then, where Paul turns his attention now from the Galatian believer, his confidence that they, they believe in God, and now he turns his attention to the false teacher. He has to deal with them. And, and it's very interesting how he makes defense here. He's not defensive, right? Sometimes when you and I are attacked, we get very defensive. Our wives get defensive. Our kids can get defensive when we're attacked. But notice how Paul deals with this, with these false teachers who are slandering him. Paul writes this, And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. I love that. You kind of get this idea here that, uh, that Paul is not a respecter of persons. God has said, I am not a respecter of persons, whoever he is. It's very flippant here. Like, to Paul, it doesn't matter who's saying this, right? So the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So I love the confidence Paul has again here. And this confidence is not arrogant. Confidence is not arrogance. He is confident in the Lord with this too. He places the judgment of this false teacher into God's hands with his response. So he places the believer in God's hands. He also places the judgment for this false teacher into God's hands, but he still has to judge. Paul's still making a judgment call here, isn't he? And notice he doesn't hunt to find out who he is and to deal directly with the false teacher, right? He puts his arm around the believer here. He kind of is almost dismissive of this false teacher. So he's a shepherd. He cares for these sheep with this teaching, with his instruction, with his accountability. He puts his arm around them and protects them. 
So he pronounces before them, though, what he thinks quite openly, and he makes a judgment. He also comes across dismissive, like, yeah, I'm not worried about him. He's done. And the phrase, whoever he is, again, is also a bit condescending towards that person. Like, you don't really matter. He doesn't make much of him. Because why are these Galatian believers being tempted to follow this false teacher? What do you think this false teacher's been doing? Who's this false teacher making much of? Himself. So Paul comes over and kind of squishes him back down. The rest of the church feared him, probably. They had been manipulated into worrying about what this false teacher thought of him. Paul is very loving here to rescue them out of that fear of man. Directing them back to God. Directing them back to Christ by taking the stand that this false teacher will be dealt with and as a nobody. Whoever he is. Paul is essentially calling him a nobody. No one of consequence. Instead, again, Paul rests his authority in the Lord. He places this false teacher in God's hands. And he settles the believer. Then now let's look at verse 11 where Paul then gives a defense of his own teaching. And he argues his point very well. It writes this, but if I, brothers, okay, so he's placing himself also under the authority of God here, doesn't he? Paul's not above God. He's not above the word of God. He's not above the gospel. He places himself under the authority also of God. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. This is the crux of his argument here. Evidently, it's presupposed here that there was some confusion about Paul's teaching regarding circumcision. Someone was apparently circulating lies that Paul taught faith plus circumcision. It's really weird why they would do this. These slanderous lies were confusing the believer. They were confusing to Paul, right? And Paul had to set the record straight. It was maliciously intended and meant to unsettle the Galatian believer. This is part of what he said earlier when someone was cutting in on them in the race that they were running well. Remember that last week? Someone was tripping them up here. One of the best ways to manipulate people is to, number one, cause great confusion about what was said. Paul's very clear. (laughs) There's no question here what he's teaching. But people who like to cause problems, they call into question people's words that were very clear. And then they want to take those people that they're trying to confuse and they isolate them from the one who was truly loving them and protecting them. And, 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 and to isolate them from the one that had their best interest at heart with nothing to gain other than their good. And that was Paul here. He had nothing to gain except these believers' good, right? So notice with me how Paul handles this lie, though. It is quick, it is very harsh and it is pointed, and it is carefully directed. Paul came across very authoritatively because he knew the highest authority had his back, God himself. But notice, first of all, Paul did not wage an anti-circumcision campaign. It's not what he did. He didn't go out there launching this huge anti-circumcision campaign. Paul's method of sanctification is to continue in the Christian life according to the order of God's call. He's already been through this in many other letters. If a man was circumcised when he was called, then what was he to be? Circumcised. If a man was uncircumcised when he was called into Christ, what was he to be? 
uncircumcised. There was one other weird case later on where he took a different approach because of situational ethics, and he talked through it, and it was carefully done. But in 1 Corinthians 7, 18 and 19, it says this, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, right? It's nothing. Gentiles need not be fleshly Jew and vice versa, because we're spiritual Jews in Christ. Secondly, he turns the idea of circumcision and the cutting of the flesh on the Judaizer's head. Now, this is the biting sarcasm and irony that Paul uses here. And it brings a great deal of weight that is necessary. So, he wishes that, notice the language here, that Judaizers, or the ones causing this confusion and chaos, would what? I know we're in church today, and we have to be very careful with what we say, emasculate themselves. I wish that they would emasculate themselves. Paul's openly admitted wish is that they would castrate themselves, and this weaves an ironic reversal here, doesn't it, with what they were teaching. Stands to show also how strongly Paul feels, not about protecting himself, but about protecting the gospel, right? The gospel matters this much that he uses this biting irony here. And he feels so strongly about these false teachers casting spiritual confusion on his people. And there's a lot to this analogy. Here in a, this is sort of a a sick, dark joke with some black humor here. But there's some overlapping language with Deuteronomy 23.1. And I think Paul knew when he was writing this that the Judaizing false teacher would know what Paul is saying here. Because things he knew would get back to him. So in Deuteronomy 23.1, we see some overlapping language whereby the Judaizers' suggestion that the Galatian believers circumcise themselves to become a part of the church of Jesus Christ that the Judaizers should castrate themselves so that they Judaizers, the Judaizers would be cut off from the church of Jesus Christ. That is the language he was most likely drawing in from the Old Testament by way of Deuteronomy 23.1. It writes this, No one whose testicles are crushed or male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So it was a deeper analogy there that he was wishing that they would just be cut off from the church. And he was pronouncing a judgment that you should just excommunicate yourself over this teaching because it's not in the realm of God's kingdom to teach this. That was the spiritual significance of what he's saying here. This is also strongly he felt towards justification that to teach these things was to separate you from the kingdom of God. So he's saying, if you want to follow the law, then go cut off your male parts and leave us alone. He was wishing that based on what they were teaching, they would be excluded from the church. They have no part in being in the church. They were, by, by demonstration, excluding themselves from Christ. They were placed under a curse. They were anathematized. So in 5.12, as, as harsh as this is, this is just Paul circling back to his opening his opening anthem here, where he pronounced anathema on these false teachers. Please turn with me back to the opening pages of Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I just want to read this to you again. 
Because he keeps coming back to this. In Galatians 1, 6-9, right here in the introduction, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Right? There's only one true message. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Let those who preach a works-based justification be damned. But Pastor Mark, that's not nice. Or maybe I should say, but Pastor Mark, that's not nice. Because I hear a lisp when I hear things like that. People who take issue with this kind of humor and irony and sarcasm and this kind of language are the ones who are susceptible to false teaching. Be careful. I lovingly warn you, be careful. It's almost like the 11th command is the way people live today, and that's the command to just be nice and don't think about the other 10. When it comes to the purity of the gospel, it doesn't matter whether we're being nice or not. That's not important. We need this kind of language. It's good for you. It's good for me. If you're sitting here thinking it's not nice, if you're bucking this language today because you think we're called to be gentle when it comes to people twisting God's word, be careful. Be warned. Feel the weight of this today. It's good for you. Feel the weight of it. So to answer the question regarding whether or not it is appropriate for a minister of the gospel to talk this way is to question the very word of God himself, it's here. And it's here for our good. It's a living and active truth. And it should be applied with the same kind of weight in which this was written. It's a living book for us today. We are so often tempted to question these parts of God's word. We ought not. We're tempted to read this through the lens of modern psychoanalysis. He was not lashing out against them because he, Paul, was attacked. This wasn't personal. It was not reactive. Paul was carefully calculated. He was well argued. And this was aptly applied with great objectivity. The gospel is this important that it demands this kind of response to those who attack God's people from within. What was at stake was something much bigger than Paul. That's why you can feel the weight of that. He had been commissioned directly by Christ to proclaim his good news, especially among these Gentiles. This message was now being attacked and undermined by false teachers who belonged to Satan, were not a part of the true church. Paul waged a war on them, and rightly so. So I, I can say this, for Paul to have given a soft rebuke, to walk on eggshells, so to speak, would have been to compromise the gospel. Would be to compromise it. I love what Luther wrote commenting on this verse in 512. 
Here the question arises whether Christians are permitted to curse. Going back to the anathema language. Yes, they're permitted to do so. But not always and not just for any reason. He gives great caution. And I give you caution on that. But when things come to the point where the word is about to be cursed or it's teaching and as a consequence God is blasphemed, then you must invert your sentence and say, Blessed be the word and God, and cursed be anything apart from the word and from God, whether it be an apostle or an angel from heaven. Isn't that what he wrote? Resonates square with Paul, squarely with Paul. We see Peter did this with Simon in Acts 8.20 when he basically said, you and your money can go to hell. That strong warning was needed. Karl Barth wrote in his church dogmatics, if we do not have the confidence of damnamus, if we don't have that confidence that that exists, that damnation actually happens, we ought to omit credimus and truth, right? Credibility. And go back doing theology as usual. This is nothing new. This has been a part of church history for, since the beginning of time. Way back in the garden, when Satan came in Genesis 1 and 2 and tempted Eve, didn't he over and over say, did God say, and begin questioning God's word and distorting it? Right? From the very beginning, God's word is often questioned and twisted by those who hate Christ. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn from just this portion today? Number one, pastors and teachers have a special responsibility to guard with great strength and to guard with great care that which has been committed to their trust. That's almost directly from 1 Timothy 6.20. It says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's the gospel. Guard it. Wage war with anybody who would threaten that. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Again, that's our health, wealth, and prosperity gospel today. We ought to guard against that. Not only is this the task of the pastors and the elders to watch the deposit, the truth is squarely taught, but also this is the, the, the task of the entire congregation as well. You are tasked to guard the gospel. This is the task for all of us together. First Timothy 3.15 says, The church is the pillar and the supporter of truth. You are the pillar and the supporter of truth. Do you know the truth? Do you love the truth? Does that truth set you free that you belong to Christ and you're to walk according to his word? The church is the pillar and it's the supporter of truth. The church upholds the truth and provides a foundation for others to accept it. And notice this too, that truth does not change with the times. We don't apologize for that. We ought to change to match the truth that's always been set forth. The truth ought to change us. Doesn't matter how the truth is perceived by those in the world. Doesn't matter how by how the truth is perceived by you. Doesn't matter. We're all called to bow to the truth of God's word and let it change our hearts, reform our hearts, and and make our lives live for his glory. Therefore, we're all called to guard that deposit. 
Paul then turns his attention from unmasking, from unmasking the faulty and malicious intentions of the false teachers to a return of the major theme, the freedom in Christ. So Paul lays forth the ethical implications of this doctrinal foundation here for us in verses 13 through 15. So all we have time for today is unpacking this section in really three parts. And these are the three parts. The call to liberty. The temptation of license. Right? And the service of love. That love is always connected to obedience. So the call to liberty we see in the first part of verse 13. Let's read that again. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the call to liberty we see in 13, that first part there, starts with Paul calling out, a marking out a strong contrast between the false teacher, as he just shot at, with the terms of affection to the believer in this verse when he says, my brothers. So again, we see Paul kind of putting his arm around the believers here. He's figuratively loving them. He's showing his care and concern for them. He's redirecting them with his love and his companionship. He then goes on to remind them that they've been set free in Christ. You're set free. For you, brethren, were called to freedom. He reminds them of that purpose for which they've been called to be free and what that looks like. Remember, this freedom was being threatened. They were being threatened to go back into legalism. How many of you have met really legalistic people before? The whole way they live their life is, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. It's all doing, doing, doing. They forget to be kind of thing. That's the issue there. And they think that that doing procures the more favor with God. Okay, So they were being tempted to go back into that. These extra rules going beyond what God has said. We ought to always be careful not to say more than what God says. It's just as bad to say, to do that as to say less than what he says. They were being threatened to put on the yoke of slavery. So however, in this instance in 5.13, a certain group of Galatian believers were being tempted to presume on the grace of God through living in moral chaos. So we're going to see the flip side of this too. They were being threatened as well towards a life of reckless abandonment. So we have a temptation not only of... uh, not living in that liberty, but also this temptation of license, of just doing whatever we want to do because Jesus died for us. So in the middle of 13, let's talk about this phrase, only do not use your freedom for an opportunity for the flesh. What's he talking about there? The freedom of God can be horribly perverted. The freedom of God and the the doctrine of justification can lead people to think that they can just live however they want. I'm saved I done did that so I can do whatever I want. Many hear this doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, and think that I can do whatever comes into my head. Say whatever I want. Feel whatever I want. And this doctrine, then, is not meant to be a springboard for throwing off all moral constraints. It is not a hall pass to fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Liberty, freedom in Christ, is not meant to be a pass for lustful living any more than it is meant to be used for legalism. Both are just as damaging. Both, if not confessed and repented of, will lead to hell. Going beyond God's word is just as bad as leaving out his teachings. So the fancy word that uh, theologians use, and here's, here's a big word for you today, antinomianism. Antinomianism. 
That's just a fancy word for meaning anti-law or lawlessness. And what is Satan's, one of Satan's names, by the way? He is called the what? He's the great deceiver, but he's also called the lawless one. The lawless one. He hates God's law. We as believers, we love God's law. We just don't believe that keeping it gets us saved. So antinomianism or anti-law is just as much a threat to the church as those legalistic Christians. You know, those ones that say you have to wear dresses all the times, ladies, if pants are bad, and you can't listen to rock music, and, you know, on and on you go, adding to God's law. Well, antinomianism, lawlessness, is also just as damaging. The word flesh here is not that earthly things are bad and spiritual things are good, right? It's referring to lustful intentions, sinful intentions of the heart. So when you see the word flesh here, it's sarcos, leads to death, leads to, leads to a life apart from God. That flesh here is, has to do with lusts that are not from God, that are sinful. So it's referring to lustful intentions. It's a term with total ethical implications, with moral implications. Your morality does matter. It speaks to the fallen human nature, the center for human pride and self-willing, self-indulgence. Paul is saying here that the Galatians must not turn their freedom into a license or use it as an occasion to gratify those lustful desires in the heart. Paul then turns from the negative what not to do to the positive what are we to do, what we are to give ourselves to. That is found in the last part of verse 13. And with this today, we'll, we'll close. The antidote to battling the flesh is the doctrine of justification. But to not abuse this doctrine, we turn to how we're called to battle. It's to wage war. And how do you wage that war, Christian? What does it say here? With love. With love. We live in a world that thinks that they know what love is. But you know what that love is? It's actually a different word here, flesh. They think that love is fleshliness, lustfulness. They think it's the self-will. But the love for the Christian is not from that. It is born of sacrifice, putting your own desires to death. The opposite of flesh is love. Deep abiding love for God in turn, is fulfilled in a love for the brethren and in a love for enemies too. Jesus talked about that. Love your enemies. Pray for those that spitefully work against you. Right? Love them. The way we're called to battle the lust of the flesh, both outside in the world and inside of us all, the way we battle legalism, the way we battle lust, it's with love. But the love has to be defined according to God's terms. That love is a love in action. It's a love in service. It's dying to self, putting others better than yourselves. Christian freedom is freedom to love, freedom to sacrifice yourself, and to put others before your own self. Barrett comments on this section in his commentary. He says, the opposite of flesh is love. Love that looks away from the self. Do you hear that? It's a love that looks away from yourself. 
and it wishes even its real needs to the neighbor and spends its resources on his needs. Freedom and love delivered us from slavery. The glorious good news of justification by faith alone is that Christ has delivered us from bondage to the law and from captivity. But this freedom is not a thing like a piece of furniture that sits in a museum. Your freedom is not meant to just be used on your own desires, in other words. John Shedd, in his book, Salt from the Attic, is credited with writing this, Ships in the harbor are safe. Ships in the harbor are safe. But that is not what ships are built for. Your freedom is yours. It can sit in the harbor. You can go through this Christian life and just sit your ship in the harbor and be, play it safe all the time. Never say anything. Never challenge anything. Never push yourself. But that's not what your freedom was given for. The freedom that is yours in Christ is to be used like a ship. It's to go out. Use it. Spend it. Give it to other people. Give it to God. Give it to your wife. Give it to your children. Use that freedom of the gospel throughout your life to love others, to live for God and to live for others. This is the definition of a life of love in Christ. When Christ came, He did not come to be served. Pastor Jeff, again, is taking us through the Gospels with the teens. This is incredible that they get to hear all this. Who Christ is. He came to be a king, but he also came to be a servant. He should be worshipped, and instead he's washing feet. That's our example. Figuratively speaking, whose feet are you washing? Please don't wash feet, like literally. But who are you serving? Who are you giving yourself to that no one else knows about? Luther, again, I I love his commentary. He, He summarizes this aspect of love and freedom quite well. He says, a Christian is free and independent in every respect. You ought to freely be giving yourself to others. You're independent in every respect. A bondservant to none. A Christian is a dutiful servant in every respect, owning a duty to everyone. It's both. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. We have a freedom that results in a slavery to love. It is exemplified in the passion and death of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the head of this church. We see this in Galatians 2.20 where he spoke of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in closing today, I want to draw your attention to the fact that if we are in Christ, we will be like him. Not perfectly. You and I mess up. We're going to miss opportunities, but the trajectory of your life, the aim of your life, ought to faithfully have patterns of putting others better than yourself. Putting Christ first. Putting your wife's needs above your own, men. Wives seeking to to please your husbands as unto Christ. Not because he's so awesome, but because Christ is. Children, you ought to obey your parents in the Lord as unto Christ. To serve them. Give yourself to them. Obey them. You see things that need to be done around the house, just do it without being asked. Be a servant. Philippians 2.20 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. True freedom is in the crucifixion. 
It's going to be very, very hard for you, church, to live a life of freedom in Christ, to love God and love others when you're trying to fulfill the lust of your flesh and you're not battling it and killing it. It's going to suck you of all your energy. You're not going to have the time or the energy or the mind of Christ to be able to serve others if that's what you're doing. True freedom in Christ is crucifixion. You ought to be dead to your sins. This is to describe our life. We'll have to pick up on verse 14 next week where we'll see that the law is not meant to get us in. (laughs) But once we're in Christ, all by Him, we joyfully seek to live the law of love out of glory to God in the Spirit of God. We'll see next week in Paul, without resorting to legalism, encourages the believer to demonstrate their living an act of faith by the law of love that leads to a life of faith, obedience to God and His Word, a life of holiness. So just some application today. I want you to take some time today to consider the state of your life. Where are you going? What's your direction? I want you to think about that right now. Evaluating where you've been, where you're at now through the gospel, in Jesus Christ, remembering your freedom, where are you going? Are you living that out? Does this doctrine of justification that you're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, has that changed the course of your life? Has it led you to a law of love for others better than yourself? Or do you see yourself above others? Everyone else below you. Has this truth of the gospel changed you and humbled you to be like Christ? When you lift your eyes to the multitudes, are you filled with with compassion like Christ? Or do you pray like others, thank God that I'm not like that sinner. Thank God I'm not like him over there. Man, what a loser. Your Sunday lunches, are they spent recounting the grace of God in your life in humility or is it spent cutting other people down in the church? Or that crazy fool of a pastor that gets up and preaches and you don't like what he says. Right? We are fools. Usually the arrogant and proud and those who are better than others are proud of their standard and their religion. It's usually a sign that the cross is of no value. There are some who will be more legalistic, though you would never admit it. There's pride. Then there are those who land on the side of using the gospel for an occasion of the flesh. Repent of that. Come to Christ. He forgives. And it's usually it's these who can soothe their conscience while carrying on emotional affairs or reading smutty novels with no bruised conscience or lying perpetually about everything. For some, it could be pornography has gripped your life. Oh, I'm fine. I'm justified. For some, it could be that disrespect for your parents is common in your life, but oh, I'm justified and it's okay. Is justification becoming a license to sin? The answer to all of this, church, is the gospel. And it's a love for God. It's a love for His Word, and it's a love for the saints. It's fulfilled in dying to yourself, running to Christ, loving all those who are in Christ. The answer is love to put away that pornography that's stealing your heart from God. The answer is love to put away your pride and lying and excuses and instead repent and give yourself to God and others. Consider others better than yourselves. But why do we do this? It's because He is worthy. God is worthy. 
Christ is worthy. He is to be obeyed and honored, commands us to love one another and to serve others. I pray you're able to confess. If you're a legalist, die to your works. Love others. Trust in Christ's finished work. You're not all that. Get over yourself. Your righteousness is as filthy rags, just like mine. Repent and trust Christ. If you're using liberty as a license to continue in sin, repent. Get over yourself. You're not happy and you know it. Joy is found in being what God has called you to, to freedom. In works of love for others, die to your flesh. That is where joy is found in Christ. So may God help us all. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gospel that sets us free in Christ. All the glory is to the Lamb who is slain, that takes away the sin of the world. So, Father, all of us that are in Christ, I pray that we will not lean towards legalism, will we not lean towards license, but help us to put to death the deeds of the body and live a life of love for you and others. May the Holy Spirit of God apply that truth. May the Word of God bear weight in our hearts with that truth to lead us to a life of light in love and freedom. We give you thanks for that freedom that Christ has given us on the cross of Calvary and in that empty tomb. May we feel that freedom today, live in that freedom, and love you and love others. In Jesus' name, amen.